Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, <laughs> that's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. This episode is brought to you by Progressive, where drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average. Plus, auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Quote now at Progressive.com to see if you could save. Progressive Casualty Insurance and Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey, everybody, I know you're just listening to Unspooled, but we are here to tell you about another awesome Earwolf show. Um, Amy, do you know about Off Book? Oh, let's talk about Off Book. All right, so it's an improvised musical podcast with Jess McKenna and Zach Reno. Um, I've been on this show twice. I love it, and I hate doing improvised musicals because I, I don't think that my strength is in improvising songs, but they're so good. And their musician that joins them to compose as it's going on is amazing. And each week you're getting a hilariously comedic musical, totally improvised on the spot. It's it's great. I love this. I feel like we're having a musical renaissance. Mm-hmm. And uh, thank you for contributing your song and dance to it, man. Well, hey, look. I will do my best. I will sing my little heart out. And there's amazing guests on this show. Me, of course. Scott Ackerman, Paul F. Tompkins, Nicole Parker, Brian Safi, And so many more people are singing. They're rapping. And they're just diving in and having so much fun. They just celebrated their one-year anniversary with one of the most insane episodes of all time. I wouldn't say that's a good one to start off with. Um, but maybe check out the one that I did, uh, which is uh, very early on in their run. It's their first live episode. And it's about werewolves and uh, Home Depots, and uh, I think it's a lot of fun. So listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcast fix, and get ready to sing along, body roll, or just silently groove to Off Book, wherever podcasts are heard. The year 1994, and it was the first time Morgan Freeman did voiceover. The film, Shawshank Redemption. I'm Paul Shear. I'm Amy Nicholson. And welcome to Unspooled. Unspooled. This is a film podcast where we go through the AFI's top 100 greatest films of all time, the 2007 list. We have done about 10 episodes so far. We're a tenth of the way through, my dude. Very exciting. Now, we're going to talk about uh, a big kind of classic today, Shawshank Redemption. But before we do that, let's go back to last week where we talked about Buster Keaton's film, The General. A lot of you... Uh, had thoughts, and we want to kind of share some of our favorite ones. First up, I want to thank Twitter user at Prybaby, who 
was really affected by the story we told about Buster Keaton as a boy getting thrown around on stage by his parents who used him as basically a prop, like a giant cartoon ball. Uh, she did some art about young baby Buster that I thought was really beautiful. She gave him a, a black eye. It was toddler Buster Keaton. Oh, and it I was, saw that one. It was really gorgeous. Probably we were knocked out. Thank you for that. Yeah. Also, Twitter user Benderoni brought up this kind of conspiracy theory, who knows, apocryphal story about Buster Keaton that I've always been kind of curious about and tried to research, which is that Buster Keaton, when he got older, claimed that he was given the nickname Buster by no less than Harry Houdini, who he said was touring the country with his parents at the time. Now, Ooh. people have tried to go back and be like, you sure? You sure about this? And they've been like, oh, I don't really think they played the same clubs at the same time. But nobody wants to really, I think, come out and say that Buster Keaton's a liar. So we'll just we'll just leave that there as a story he told when he opened his mouth. <laughs> I like the way that we do that. All right. It's just there for your perusal. Uh, a lot of people brought up the fact that we spent a lot of time talking about um, how the film kind of reminded me of Jackass. But a lot of people said that the film that they thought the general had the most in common with was Mad Max Fury Road. And once I heard that, I was like, oh, yeah, of course. Uh, it's very similar to it. And uh, we should have had George Miller on. That would have been great. We could have talked I to him. let just call up our buddy George. <laughs> <laughs> and, and somebody raised the point, like, do we think that there's a world where Mad Max Fury Road could ever be on the AFI list, to which I would have to say, given that there's no film that's the fourth, fifth sequel without yeah. any of the other ones being on it, probably not a chance in hell, but it's mm. so great. It's such a great movie. And to that end, uh, finally, we're just going to wrap up with the thought here. Um, it seemed like our Facebook group, 90% of them believe the general should be on the list. But on our Earwolf boards, I would say many of them Almost all of them believe it should not be on the list. That's interesting. so interesting. There were people who kind of feel that I do, that Steamboat Bill Jr. is the slightly better film. Yeah. So it's a, it's a mix. It's a real mix. People love this movie, and some people believe it belongs there. Other people are more on, I think, the side of you and I. So let's get into it. Amy, let's talk Shawshank Redemption. So Amy, number 72 on the AFI, greatest movies of all time list, but... Number one on the IMDb list of the best movies of all time, Shawshank Redemption. Interesting parallel, Citizen Kane. What number do you think that is on the IMDb list? Okay. I believe that Citizen Kane is falling victim to what we found on this podcast, which is many people know of it but don't actually watch it. I would say it's at least 15 to 25 in that range. Ooh, lower. Lower? Yeah. In the 50s? Lower. 75? Almost. 73, which makes Whoa. it parallel worse than Shawshank on the AFI to scale. We have a 72 right. over here. We got a 73 over here. So while we're talking about its position on the two lists, we kicked the question last week to you guys. Do you think that Shawshank Redemption deserves to be number one on IMDb? Shawshank Redemption for a movie with no women in it makes me cry like a baby. It's one of the few critically acclaimed classic movies I can think of that just checks off all the boxes for a wide-ranging audience. I think it has to do with the ending of that movie. It uh, just feels it feels so good. Uh, it just feels so inspiring. For me, it's one of those movies, I own it on DVD, and if I'm flipping through channels and see it playing, I will sit and watch the rest of the film. Shawshank Redemption is totally overrated. I have no idea why it's on the number one in IMDb. It takes no risks. It's just made to be liked by everybody. 
I don't think it deserves to be number one. I don't think it deserves to be on the AFI list at all. Shawshank is a great movie, but it is not number one. Uh, these IMBD users, they'll let any clown rate these things. You can't go with that. IMDb rates their movies based on two factors, the rating and the number of ratings. So my theory is that everybody has seen Shawshank Redemption and that nobody doesn't like it. Interesting. All right. I did not expect that at all. But I think part of the reason why Shawshank is number one on the IMDb list is because of exposure. I mean, this movie, you were, you cannot not watch Shawshank. Um, it is on all the time. Like, like, and I actually did a little bit of research about that because it is crazy how much it, it airs. Um, by 2013, The Shawshank Redemption had aired on 15 basic cable networks and in that year occupied 151 hours of airtime, only rivaling Scarface and only behind Mrs. Doubtfire. That is, I mean, to be fair, that's yeah. only watching Shawshank like six times, right? <laughs> it was in the top 15% of movies among adults between the ages of 18 and 49 on the Spike Up, Sundance TV, and Lifetime channels. And despite its... Uh, mainly male cast. It was the most watched movie on the female targeted own network. Ted Turner, who had a stake in this movie, sold the rights to it to TNT at a lower cost. So it basically is less expensive for him to show on his own networks. He is gaming the system. Well, and he got that lower cost in part because this movie bombed when it was in theaters. Yes. So people are like, eh, you can have it for a couple pennies. It's fine. It's fine. It's fine. Now, I want to say right up at the top, I'm going to try to be open-minded about Shawshank Redemption here because I know that this is a very beloved movie. Mm -hmm. I think that part of why it's number one is because it's in many ways an inarguable movie. You know, this is a classy movie. It's got classy cinematography. It's got a classy point. Like, all men love art. All men deep down, we're artists. (laughs) You know, you watch this movie and you're like, I love art. This is art. This is art for me. Like, this is everybody's art. This is... This Wait, is, this you're is, saying that the characters, it's their art? Or like that the characters are going on a journey of art? Or is it just like us as the viewing public watch it and go, this is art? I mean, it's both. It's both. I mean, this is a movie based on a book written by Stephen King that celebrates a man who creates a library. You know, it's just a guy being like, <laughs> books. I love books. And this guy loves books. And you love him. And you love books. And you're a good person because books are good. Wh- what would you say if I said Maybe the movie is more about what freedom is. You know, how are we truly free? Can we shed the confines of our life to actually uh, achieve a, a bigger greatness? You know, do we take the punches or do we go against the grain? As Henry Ford said, every airplane takes off into the wind. And this movie is celebrating the airplane's of the Shawshank Redemption. There's only really two airplanes, which would be uh, Morgan Freeman and uh, Tim Robbins. <laughs> yeah, everybody else winds up in prison at the end still. Yeah. Or dead. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think that Shawshank Redemption is basically like a high school movie because you're all trapped here. It's like the breakfast club. Right. Everybody learns to get along. Right. They all figure out their common differences. There's a cool kid's table in the cafeteria. It's where all these people hang out. Uh-huh. And they just hang out. Like by the end of the movie, they're all just kicking it in their library. I mean, this movie is... You are talking down to this movie so hardcore. I love it. Is it talking down or is it just saying what happens? No. I mean, look, I think that this movie is relatively free of drama, right? It's a very 
nice tale. And I think that there's something about that. It's not a traditional prison film. It's not even a movie about really overcoming strife. It's a movie about like just people interacting. Like he doesn't come in and Red isn't like, oh, get the fuck out of here. It's like, hey, how are you? You know, no one is fighting him. He's having problems with the Aryan nation. Sure, that's a prison problem. I get that. But the majority of the movie is like the Bud Light of movies. It's, you can't deny it because it's fine. And it almost washes over you. Like, you feel like you've almost seen something more important. I mean, I I like Bud Light. I'm more of a Coors Light person. Okay, sure. If we're going to be honest. Okay, yeah. And I think that there's a nobility in that. Mm -hmm. You know, if I was going to go out to any restaurant, you just like put me in any restaurant in the world, any person, any cuisine, a Coors Light's probably going to go with that meal better than like a a malted chocolate. We don't need those fancy IPAs. We don't need those small batch brews. I mean, I think that you're hitting on why this movie is so popular, though. A 16-year-old girl could love this movie. A 65-year-old woman could love this movie. It's interesting you you mentioned women loving this movie because there are only two speaking parts of women in it. Yeah, I actually even feel like it's only one person who really speaks (laughs) because his wife mutters things quietly. Like, yes, harder, harder. And then there's this lady. This is in the Brooks montage when Brooks is finally free. He's out in the open. And there's finally women around. Right. And here's one of them. And a job. Bagging groceries at the foodway. It's hard work. I try to keep up, but my hands hurt most of the time. Make sure your man double bags. Last time he didn't double bag, and the bottom near came out. Make sure you double bag, like the lady says. Understand? Yes, sir. Congratulations. You are the only (laughs) woman who gets an actual line in Shawshank Redemption. And you're kind of a bitch. And the other woman is cheating on her husband. Now, to be fair, I would say... 98% of this movie does take place in a prison where there would be no women around. So I I shouldn't be shocked because of the location of it, but I still am shocked about it. It's true. I mean, I would hate this movie if Andy was always having flashbacks to his wife being like gauzy and in a dress and I always loved you, honey. I forgive you. That movie would be fucking bullshit. So I'm glad that we don't actually have that in this movie. I shouldn't be swearing. This is this is an all family movie. This is this is a people pleasing movie. Well, if it was on TNT, you'd probably get a bleep or something. Yeah, I mean, it's not, by the way, it's not a family friendly movie. There is rape in this movie a few times, a handful of times. You forget about it because then the movie takes a nice turn away from that. But there's some raping and some stabbing, like some there's some rough stuff in this movie. Yeah, the camera literally takes a turn from it. It's like, oh no 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 no, let's go over here, let's go over here. <laughs> but to get to my point about yes. how this is a movie that put so much weight on art and what art can do for the mm-hmm. soul. What does Andy use to battle off his attackers the last time they attack him? He uses a film reel. He literally mm. uses a film reel. I mean, this is this is a movie about how art saves the soul. You know, I, I definitely feel like I can see that. And I think the movie, in many respects, has all these different readings. Well, a lot of people read a very Christian allegory into the film. Uh, They kind of say that Andy is the Messiah. He's a Christ-like figure. And Red, uh, you know, basically has this aura that protects him from Shawshank. And, you know, when Andy is with uh, all the people on the roof, that's kind of like the Last Supper. You know, they're all around him on either side. There's 12 of them. Yeah. (laughs) And, you know, and it's sort of, you know, Frank Darabont has gone on the record and said, uh, it is not – he was not going for that, but he likes that people, you know, can read into what they want. Well, people are going to read into it. I mean, it's a Stephen King-related thing. I mean, have you seen 
Room 237 about The Shining, where everybody's just reading into The Shining like crazy. Oh, yeah. Well, red cell, if you look at the number, is 237. Ooh. Ooh. Very creepy. No, it's not creepy. Uh, (laughs) um, There is something about finding beauty in tragedy. I mean, you know, I think the opera scene is probably the most, you know, hit the nail on the head type of moment. You know, all these men stand still to listen to the marriage of Figaro as if this is the only time they've experienced art. Which is odd to me because they also are going to see movies. Uh, But I guess maybe something this beautiful. It's like my theory that if you make an Oscar-type movie about how movies are awesome, you'll probably win because the Academy likes to hear that. Right. Because, you know, opera in movies is always used as a shorthand to say that a person is not what you think they are. They're much classier. They're much more beautiful. Whereas Huey Lewis is used to show that someone's a psychopath. It's a very (laughs) different thing. Well, yeah. I mean, I want to pull just two clips from other 90s movies to make this point. The first one that I think is most famous is in Pretty Woman. Okay. Where Richard Gere takes Julia Roberts to to the opera. He tells her, he tells her this. People's reactions to opera, the first time they see it, is very dramatic. Either love it or they hate it. If they love it, they will always love it. If they don't, they may learn to appreciate it, but it will never become part of their soul. And then we learn that Julia Roberts has a soul because she's so moved by this opera that she starts sobbing, and that's when Richard Gere's like, you're not just a woman I picked up on Hollywood Boulevard. You're special. And then there's this scene, which is from a movie that came out right after Shawshank, and is basically the same thing. This is from Life is Beautiful, where Roberto Benigni is trapped in a concentration camp breaks in, finds a record, and plays some opera for his wife to hear. So basically it's the equivalent of like Lloyd Dobler holding the boombox above his head. The only way to connect to someone that you love or show someone love is by playing them music very loudly. Oh, okay. But also classy ass music that says you're a classy ass broad <laughs> or you're a classy ass prisoner. Right. These prisoners are maligned. They're there. People think, oh, they're just, they're murderers, they're rapists, they're killers. But opera... They all they all appreciate it. They're all Julia Roberts. Yeah, and that's what's kind of fascinating is in the Life is Beautiful scene, it's only his wife. It wakes up just his wife and she walks to the window right. because she loves that opera. Yeah. Everyone else stays asleep. But in Shawshank, it's literally everybody. There's not a single person even scratching their nose when opera's playing. Well, it's interesting because I don't think that Shawshank is – a prison movie. I think it's a fantasy movie or an allegory. Like it's prison's the backdrop, but it's it's not it's not making a statement about prison. Yeah, I think it does fit better as an allegory. Yeah. Which is good. You know, it's it frees us from playing like the nitpick game. Yeah. Because the nitpick game is not always fun. I don't think the nitpick game is very fun here. I agree. But I guess my question is, what about it? makes it so watchable because I saw that Steven Spielberg said that this movie is like gum on your shoe, that once it gets on, it's very hard to get off, which sounds like some major shade, but also it is kind of true. Like, I don't know what about this movie, you know, is changing people's lives because I've read all these articles like, you know, Tim Robbins and people from all over the world say this movie changed my life. I think there's a bunch of stuff going on here. I think part of why it works so well on TV is because it's just an episodic movie in a lot Mm -hmm. of ways. There's not this major overarching 
push towards it. Like, we got to do this or right. here's our plan. Like, if you miss 10 minutes in the middle of Shawshank, it kind of doesn't matter. Right. The movie just goes on. So you could watch this movie out of order. You could watch this movie in any way. Maybe I should change my Bud Light analogy to pizza. Pizza's pizza, and no matter how you're going to get it, it's going to be pretty okay. And I feel like <laughs> Shawshank is the pizza of movies. It's Please someone make a, 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 some image of Shawshank is the pizza of movies, please. I saw a picture of Shawshank as a bunt cake. Oh, well, you know, they have, they have Shawshank bunt cake because um, the town where they shot this, they do Shawshank tours so you can get, like, reformer wine and then you can get Shawshank Bunk Cake, and you can go on a tour of the actual prison where they didn't even really shoot the interiors. They just shot the exterior of it. Uh, so, I yeah. kind of got hooked into a YouTube video of a dude going on a tour. He was a dude I with, did, like, too. He's little reflective sunglasses, yes. and he's like, did you watch the same one, the dude in the shorts and the sunglasses, and he's got a cat? Some serious heavy-duty locks there as well as a straight jacket. I like the creaky wooden floors in here give quite a bit of cool ambiance. I saw the one where Bob Gutton, the warden, is there sitting behind his desk kind of talking about the film. Whoa. Yeah, and he reveals uh, the fact that the sound that the gunshot makes in the film when he blows his head off is also the same sound that the stamper makes when they reject or approve uh, people in the parole hearings. Whoa, dude. It's also a freedom. Whoa. A freedom, the gun gave him freedom of life. And then Who the stamp like gave freedom? a freedom. Freedom's <laughs> great. We're in America. We want freedom in any sort of form. People right now so upset that we're coming harder at Shawshank than Titanic. But I think when you pick it apart, and it's not like it's not like this is bad. I don't you don't think anything about this is bad, right? Or what do you think? I don't think it's bad, bad, bad. I mean, I have I think that Tim Robbins is a little bit checked out sometimes. Mm -hmm. I think there's a scene. In fact, let's just play the scene. There's a scene where he is talking to Morgan Freeman. It's right, at, right, right after he's got out of solitude uh, for the second time. He seems – his character's supposed to be acting hazy, but there's something in the way that Tim Robbins delivers lines that seems hazier than hazy. And when, okay. you, have, when you have Morgan Freeman jump in, his voice sounds like it's on concrete. And they just sound like they're on these different planes in a way that I think doesn't really work for me. I think you'll ever get out of here. Me? Yeah. One day, when I got a long white beard and two or three marbles rolling around upstairs, they let me out. I'll tell you where I'd go. To Watton Hill. To what? To Watton Hill. It's in Mexico. A little place on the Pacific Ocean. You know what the Mexicans say about the Pacific? See, it has no memory. That's where I want to live the rest of my life. A warm place with no memory. See, I think what drives me a little bit bonkers about Andy Dufresne yeah. is he doesn't seem like a real person to me, kind of ever, especially here. Here's a question I have for you. Okay. Do you think that this movie would be dramatically different if Andy Dufresne was guilty of murdering his wife? Yes, but maybe it's the the story that we're used to telling because here's an idea of a, of someone who was wrongly accused. He is now put into prison. He is doing something illegal. He is being abused physically, mentally, but yet he survives. If he was guilty, 
then he deserves to be there. And it's less of a journey for him ultimately because he is being properly punished. You know, that's what people respond to in the movie. It's like, shit, things didn't go right for me. Things, you know, I was supposed to do this and I, I was, I wanted to get that job and I was, and I got a divorce or I didn't, you know, I want that thing and you don't get it, but how do you move on? And maybe this movie shakes people out of it. Like if Andy can get through it, I can get through it. If it was a real story, it would have tremendous power. Uh, but of course it is a fictional story. Well, I hear that. And I think maybe one of my just core differences on this is I really wish he was guilty mm -hmm. because I'm more emotionally moved by the fact that we're capable of badness and we can still become better people. But and that's so red. Uh, yeah, I guess I never buy that Red's a murderer either, no matter how good Morgan <laughs> Freeman is. I mean, I, this guy killing anybody is right. so nice. Well, I mean, I do think that, like, they do whitewash the prisoners, right? The friends that he has. And I don't even think that they're the cool people. They just happen to be his grouping of friends. You know, the old man, the other guy, uh, you know, Morgan Freeman. You don't really get into what they did and, and kind of the way they get aware around that is, you know, we're all innocent, you know. But – they are they are murderers, and as a matter of fact, harsh murderers. Because um, in the movie, just Red says, "I committed murder," um, but in the in the novel, which they don't go into, <laughs> he's serving three life sentences for murdering his wife, his neighbor's wife, and the neighbor's son because he disconnected the brakes on his car in order to kill his wife to collect on an insurance policy. But he did not plan on the two other people joining his wife for her ill-fated drive. <laughs> Which is just a very specific thing. And then the old man, he also is in there for, like, killing his wife after a gambling spree gone bad. God, they're but, all wife killers, man. Oh, yeah. They are really uh, – Could, Couldn't any of them have killed anybody else on nope. the planet? <laughs> but I, I think – but when you come and you meet them, they seem unencumbered by this. They don't seem like the prisoners that you would expect. They seem – pretty chill like it seems like um it people seems you might like bump into in palm <laughs> springs or something like that like no one has an edge to them i mean what this movie is saying is prison works <laughs> you you are murderer outside you get put in prison and then you become a pretty chill dude i mean i like that you compared this to titanic given that shawshank ends with this beautiful dreamy sequence of our torn apart lovers platonic lovers yes reuniting on a boat i mean that's our titanic ending but you know what this movie really reminds me yes of? what is ben hur Think about it. Really? It's a guy accused of something he didn't do, put through hell. Okay. And then coming out this Christ-like figure. Wow. Uh, empowering another Christ, like two kind of Christ-like-ish people empowering each other next to each other. That's, that is, you know, I can't fight you there. And I feel like that theme and that idea is ripe for the picking on the AFI greatest movies of all time list. I feel like that's what they want to celebrate. And I don't think this movie is celebrated if he is a criminal. I don't I don't think I don't think it's a triumphant story that way. I guess I just think it's beautiful that criminals can like opera. Uh, but I guess they do. Yeah. I guess they do. Well, well they're here, all people. Well here, I want to play actually a music clip from you. This is from when Andy climbs through the sewer, mm -hmm. gets out, the rain falls down down on him. It's that big triumphant moment. It when he's being birthed. I mean, essentially yeah. Andy is being rebirthed oh. in. He goes through the birth canal, which is represented by, uh, I think, Raquel Welch at that point. Like he has a woman covering up the hole. He goes into the woman's hole and then comes out head first into that, uh, into that lake. God, so women are prisons? That also makes sense. 
Well, no, he's <laughs> he's being rebirthed. She is she's the blocking hole. Like she. <laughs> but, but listen to but this. It, it does, if now, if you think about it, it does make that scene where the warden puts his finger through the poster uh, even more creepy. <laughs> <laughs> well, listen to the music in that scene, and tell me whether or not I'm crazy that I think this sounds like Ben Hur. Wow, that you are right. I mean, if you just heard that, can you imagine me going lepers? <laughs> <laughs> I would like you to do that over the entire soundtrack. Um, just to put this movie a little bit in context, it comes out in 1994, which is like a legit batshit year on so many levels. First of all, this movie is in theaters at the same time as Pulp Fiction and Forrest Gump. You know, um, and not doing well at all. So much so that Frank Darabont does that, like, tradition where you go around to movie theaters playing the film on the opening night. He went to the Arclight here in Hollywood, and it was empty. Like, no one was there. Yeah, Shawshank had the bad luck to go wide the weekend that Pulp Fiction opened, which I remember that weekend. I remember getting dropped off at the movie theater and saying, oh, "Oh my God, it's the most exciting day ever. I went to Pulp Fiction and then couldn't buy a ticket, and I was like, I'll come back again. I was so excited about that. But yeah, it was competing for ticket sales against Pulp Fiction and Forrest Gump, so it got clobbered. Obviously, we have these big uh, films in theaters, but this is the year that Friends starts on the air, the first PlayStation's out there, um, Nancy Kerrigan was attacked. Uh, Whoa, did you know that I just met Tonya Harding? I saw those pictures on Instagram. It was very cool. She's very uh, motivational. Which is surprising. I really kind of found her to be engaging in that New York Times article about her. It's a, it's a good it's a good read. Uh, Nicole Brown Simpson murdered this year. Uh, this is a good time just to stay home and watch TV. Yeah, I know. Uh, where Prince Charles admits to an affair with Camilla Parker Bowles. You know, I always liked them as a couple. <laughs> so that's my hottest take maybe of this whole episode is I think that that Prince Charles and Camilla Parker Bowles have a great romance. They just always loved each other for decades. Hey, yeah, look, they, and they got through. Look, just like Andy, they waited. <laughs> Through and they got out on the other side, all right? Like, this movie definitely, I think, got clobbered because of the title. And I want to go back to what you said. I think it's a better TV movie. Like, I did a movie called uh, School for Scoundrels. And uh, and so many people talk about that movie when they saw it on TNT. And I think there's a level of acceptance when you just put it on. I think Netflix definitely caters to that market where you're like, well, it didn't cost anything. Here I am. And all of a sudden this experience, it feels, it feels a little bit more special because you found it and it, and it's going on TV. I think there are some benefits to the TV version of these movies. Well, yeah. And I think the cinematography here by Roger Deakins is perfect TV cinematography because it's really dramatic and there's only three colors. You don't have to see it that big. I mean, the entire right. movie is just blue and gray and brown. Well, and, and it's claustrophobic. End, it's like, yeah. you're, you're, you're in, you don't leave those walls only like once or twice. Yeah, so it's not like 2001 where you're like, I got to see this guy yeah. big. Shawshank, you can totally watch this on the couch. I mean, this movie is pumped into the fabric of our, our life. I mean, it's a romance that doesn't surprise me in a way that women like this movie so much. This is The Notebook. It's The Notebook with two platonic men. I mean, at oh, the wow. end of the movie, they hug. Yeah. You know, we're building up to this hug. But, you know, we were talking in the Platoon episode about how military movies give guys an excuse to bond and have a film about friendship. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's what The Shawshank is. It's like all these films on this list are about guys wanting to prove 
that they can make friends. These are all male friendship movies, but they're like just tough romances. Well, and also it's about how friendships make you better too or challenge you, you know, to a certain degree. Like I feel like, you know, basically Charlie Sheen's character is alone and then, you know, when he takes the hit out of the shotgun bong from Willem Dafoe, it's like, now you're part of us. Now we'll get, like, now we'll protect you, you know? And then I feel like here, Red is like, I come into our world, we'll protect you. And and, and yeah, so there's something about like a safety within dudes. Well, they're all male friendship movies in the most violent, horrible places. Right. In the middle of a war and then a prison. It, as if this, in these circumstances, it is safe for us to let our guards down and love each other. I do want to go back to what you said about Tim Robbins. I think that your your thought of him being a little more airy and stuff like that, that could be like kind of chalked up to like schmacting. Like, I just got out of solitary confinement for two months. I, I'm, I'm really out of sorts. My vocal cords don't work anymore. I was yeah. just whispering to ants. You know, like it could be that. Um, or it could be the idea that uh, he went very method. Like he did get locked up in solitary confinement. To, you know, he put himself in shackles. Like I, I love Cool Hand Luke. Like I love that movie. And when he's like put in solitary confinement in that movie, you feel it. Like I, and there's something about just the sweat and the darkness. But this movie doesn't even seem to like revel in the pain of that. It kind of is neither here nor there. And that's the interesting thing about the movie. And I think it goes to the TV aspect of it, which is like, it's not requiring that much of you. Like it's not, it's not forcing you to feel that much. You can kind of sit there and be like, hmm, you know, and, and kind of go on with your day. That's true. It skates up right up to the edge of yes. where you feel like you've seen something shocking and dramatic and important, but without actually making you go over that edge. Yes. You know, and the bad guys get their comeuppance. And, the, and even though that one cop is kind of, you know, a real asshole, he does buy him beer. And then, you know, he helps him with his, his money. Like they're, and he's every- also a magical cop who never ages. Oh, yeah. Everyone else's <laughs> age makeup does pretty a good job for him. Um, this guy's like, I'm just so Teutonic. Nothing can ever hurt me. <laughs> we decided to do something a little bit different uh, this week. This is an adaptation of a Stephen King novel, and we wanted to bring in someone who could speak to the actual work of Stephen King, speak to the work of Shawshank, and, uh, and just have a conversation about adaptation in general. Please welcome... The host of the Duncan Trussell Family Hour podcast, Duncan Trussell. Hi. Hi. Hey. We are so excited to have you here. I did not know that you were a super Stephen King fan. Oh, yeah. I love his work so much, particularly the Dark Tower series, yeah. which just melted my brain. But And The Shining, of course. All of them are just in, Well, not all of them. Right. Most of them are incredible. But he also was a guy, I feel like, that kind of rewrites the same novel a couple of times until he gets it kind of right. Like there's similar themes and things and he kind of fleshes it out and then sure. there's like a great version of it and then there's a, a mediocre but version of it. he's chewing on stuff. He chews yes. on stuff for a while. And, you know, the the story of him overcoming his drug addiction and, yeah. you know, misery being yeah. a, a sort of story about cocaine addiction and, uh, like, you know about the, the story of his intervention that happened? No. So, apparently, his family, he was in the living room, and his family sitting with him, like, dumps out a bag that they've collected from his office of bloody tissues that he's been shoving into his nose because his nose has been bleeding from all the cocaine he was doing as he's typing. So, it's like Stephen King literally wrote some of his great work Underneath a rain 
of blood. To me, that's so incredible. And it's so wonderful that he was able to get past that and still produce really great work. Was yeah. it in recovery or after recovery that his work starts to get more religious-ish? I'm, you know, I'm, I don't know the timeline when his work starts getting religious. Uh, I know that he was hit by a car, right. and I think something triggered him there. But that's got to be scary for, for an author or for anybody who has been producing such legendarily great, dark yeah. stuff to suddenly have their sacrament like go away. Well, yeah, you basically say I'm a success because of this combination that has created me. And so if you take one part of it out, who knows? I was going to say the cocaine makes sense when I think about it, because so many of his books almost feel like they have that drug repetition running through the background. Like when he gets a song lyric, all his characters get song lyrics in the head. And in the back of the book, there was like, Humming, running down a dream, running down a dream, like and it's <laughs> yeah. just manic. Yeah, yeah, it was, yeah, for sure. And and I've the other thing about Stephen King is some people think he's not that great. Like he's looked mm-hmm. upon as just kind of like beach reading or shit right. like that. And I think that's a really depressing take on him. You know, we talk about this a lot, like the idea that entertainment is kind of looked down upon, something that you can really enjoy on a visceral level. You know, you yeah. know, and for Stephen King, it's like, oh, it's horror. Horror is a genre thing. And I think you know right. Jordan Peele winning that Oscar for Get Out. Signals a kind of an interesting thing. Like, no, no, this can also be something that's, you know, worthy of accolades and awards. You know, it's not just a genre like you have to look at it in the corner, you know, like and put your, you know, nose down at it. Exactly. It's exactly right. That kind of ridiculous, I don't know what you call that, literary bigotry that yeah. kind of that sense of like oh because the 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 medicine is being like covered in this particular flavor of gel cap the medicine is no longer yeah. there is re- absolutely insane and th- this you know Shawshank Redemption is a great example of this deep deep teaching being wrapped up in, you know, a Stephen King short story which by the way if you look at um successful transitions from Stephen King short stories or novels into cinema. I don't think there's that many. I think because of just what you're saying, that undercurrent of inner dialogue that's happening in most of his stories, the master of writing people's thought patterns and showing their interior lives, which how the fuck do you translate that into a script? I'd say there's two other great Stephen King movies. There's The Shining and there's Carrie, and neither one of them made the AFI top list. His squishy one about hope and love did, and not his horror films. Right, that's right. Yeah, I I was going to say something about Talking about this gel cap analogy, I think the reason why Stephen King's works sometimes are spotty when they go to a different format is because you are just temp- sometimes taking the gel cap and not the thing underneath the gel cap, mm. right? Yes, here's like a, a general horror idea, but what makes it so compelling is the writing underneath yeah. it. And so I think what the films do is they just keep the simple horror idea or when it's not translated well. And we're in a world where it has definitely done a good job. Like, it was great. Because it, like, first of all, to compress that massive book into, uh, what, an hour and a half? I don't remember. It's about a two-hour movie. Two-hour movie. Fuck. Fuck. I mean, look what they- Well, half of one. And then we got the other half coming up. Right. Chastain taking over, and yeah. Right. I mean, for it was still a scary clown movie. But that's right. not a scary clown book. That's just part of it. It's, it's right. talking about, a, a, <laughs> you know, a, that there's a much deeper evil in, uh, in it. 
that than just a clown. Though it's cool to like make that evil embodied right. in a clown. It makes a lot of sense. A thing that's supposed to be like innocent and sweet is actually this rotting thing, which oh, I think a lot of like kids. That's their entire childhood is pretending that their childhood is a happy clown when really it's an evil clown. Yeah. But to get, you know, getting that across the depth with which he approached that kind of experience lots of us have had is like, I don't know how you do that in a movie. I don't think we can do it in a movie until they come up with some kind of telepathic projector that puts interior dialogue into your mind while you're watching the movie. Well, I think they do a good job in Shawshank of showing interior dialogue because there's a lot. I would say this movie is chock full of voiceover narration, but more in like what they're thinking and what they're, you know, how they're viewing each other. Fuck yeah. And with Morgan Freeman. I mean, come on. When you look at that scene where uh, he has yet again been denied parole and you see the look on his face, that's all you need for interior dialogue. I guess if you get really great actors, the interior dialogue gets – you can kind of pick it up. But talk to me about this book like, or about the novella, the, the short. Like, How does the movie and the novella differentiate? Do you remember? Uh, oh, man. I'm going to be real honest. I, so I read both. Right. I mean, I no, I read that and The Green Mile. And okay. I read The Green Mile when it was being released as – Remember, they're putting it in grocery stores. Yes. This little like 50 nuts. page books, right? Ugh. It was so badass. Yeah. It was like such a great way to release a book because it's like you're fucking like hanging every, every, you go to the, you're going to the grocery store, first of all, to buy books, which is like the old school, right? It's but, like the Charles Dickens model or something. Yes. Yeah, we're like waiting for the next <laughs> tiny uh, thing. Shawshank Redemption. I didn't like the book as much as I like the film uh, just because, man, I just love Stephen King's like, supernatural stuff better than this. But even though this is a supernatural story in a different way. The movie just softens so much of it, so much of it. Because when you read the novella, the very second paragraph, it's Red talking. The second paragraph, he's like, oh, I committed murder. You know, he just flattered, is like, I'm a murderer. Hey, this is how you know me now. This is how you're meeting me as a murderer. And you just set him up as a Mm. character slightly tougher to like, which I respect about that. That's cool. The character shifts in the movie are slight. They don't feel like prisoners in the movie. They feel like— they feel like criminals. No, they they feel very. I, I feel like we talked about the idea that this is like maybe um, not a prison movie. It's more of an analogy for how we live our lives. Mm. I mean, is that something that you took away from that as well? Or I think that the characters change, but the, the you know, for example, Red's change happens by him you know, having the guts to leave the parole hearings and deinstitutionalize himself. So that's a massive change. Red's an, an institutionalized prisoner, right? And he's, but there's something he says in there. I don't remember the exact line, but it's like, it starts off where you don't want to be here and it ends up where you become dependent on the place, right? right? And so finally when parole comes up for him and he gets out, he's leaving his universe for a whole new universe. And then when he's in that whole new universe, he's considering committing a crime to go back to jail. And so then, and then like he, he ends up not only not committing the crime, but completely evading the system and going to Mexico to meet his friend. Uh, so I think there's a massive shift that happens there. In his courage. and in yeah, his, yeah. Yeah, in his courage. Well, yeah, and just deinstitutionalizing yeah. himself. like In his belief in himself that he can be, be worthy or actually just live a life without having, you know, being in someone else's box. Being in his own box. Right. Like my favorite scene in One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. So McMurphy's sitting there with the other people in the institution, 
And they all admit that they're voluntary. They've put themselves there, right? And it's this beautiful, beautiful moment in the movie where McMurphy is incredulous. He's like, what the fuck? Yeah. You guys decided to be here? Which is, of course, like, you know, because McMurphy was more, I think, of a kind of like Jesus character in, in that. And uh, in, in the same with Cool Hand Luke. You know, you end up with this like being of light dropping into a prison who's a being of freedom representing the potentiality of a person to be free and then like having to deal with the fact that his quest for freedom, desire for freedom is is more than the people who've become institutionalized, which is a reflection of modern life, uh, which is that most people here in this place, they are okay in their own prisons they don't want to get out and they and 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 even though they might pretend they do and so you would you would then believe that tim robbins in this film is that christ figure for this movie well kind of i mean tim it's a little different because uh when in one flew over the cuckoo's nest and in cool hand luke the christ figure gets murdered gets crucified right so there's the sort of um inevitable like uh demise of the christ figure followed by a release of the Christ figure's spirit into the inmates, causing some kind of like redemptive moment for the inmates, right? So that's usually how it works. But in this one, the difference is, which is super cool, which I like, is that Andy ends up escaping the prison and gets away with it. So we don't have the crucifixion of the Christ, meaning like, oh shit, this character maybe isn't a Christ metaphor as much as um, getting yourself out of your own prison through connecting with the transcendent. I think that's probably more more what it is. And that gets into the whole Gnosticism shit that I wanted to blab about. Oh, please. Let, I, please, continue. I'm, let, I'm, let blab some Gnosticism yeah. shit at us. I'm ready. Well, so like the, um, to me, I think one of the big keys in this movie is the marriage of Figaro that he plays right. on the uh, record player. Sophia is the soul, the feminine soul in human beings that has fallen down into the material universe and because of that fall, created all of the stuff, all matter is kind of created by her. So we all have within us a spark of the divine, Sophia. Sophia longs for redemption. And uh, the redemption is the reunification with the Christ energy, which is a marriage, right? Okay. So he's playing the marriage of Figaro, which is like about a marriage in a movie that's essentially about, the, you know, people who feel this longing for redemption in a prison of their own creation. And the place actually, Sophia is this feminine force, the place they end up in, if you look up the name of that place, it actually translates to like place of women. It's a feminine place. So it represents unification. Well, the city so, in Mexico? Yeah, yeah the city. In, yeah, 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 yeah. Brilliant. It's brilliant. So he's encoded all this Gnosticism into this film, which is just like so incredible. Oh. I, you know, real quick, I want to run through some other stuff that changed in the movie that, that, um, that Darabont decided to yeah. tweak when he adapted to sort of like break this apart and kind of figure out what he was doing. A little thing. I mean, we have the character, the old character who leaves and then commits suicide and has, like, the pigeons. That's Brooks, right? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, they represented that idea of confinement, of, of being stuck mentally in prison like we were talking about, with his bird in the novella. That what happens is he has his bird. He sets his bird free when he gets out. And the bird uh, just ends up staying in the prison and starving to death. It doesn't right. fly oh, away. Wow. And this idea that even something that can leave yeah. won't leave. Yeah. Also in this, it's Red who comes up with the line, get busy living or get busy dying. It's oh, not interesting. Andy. Wow. So I like cool. the idea because I feel like it, 
they they make the balance so skewed towards Andy being this sage towards the end. I like that Red in the book gets to do his own prophesizing. Yeah. Well, yeah, I guess he deserves to be that prophet, though, right? Because he's the one who was in there the longest. He's the one whose soul was, like, the most at, at risk. He had it down. He had everything set. He, yeah, he was, like, connected there. That was he, very comfortable. He was comfortable. He, well, like, yeah. he was the boss man. And one thing I thought was interesting, too, is Stephen King gets into the history of escapes at this prison. All the people who have tried to escape, the people who get shot trying to escape. Right. And he mentions that 10 people have successfully gotten away with it. And so there's almost – I don't know if you guys find that more hopeful or or less building towards the Andy as a hopeful figure thing to know that he's just the 11th guy. It, I think it's a little less hopeful because if you have a pretty leaky prison, you know, it's sort of like, well, all right. Yeah, sure. Yeah. You know? Well, my, here's a counter argument to that. Uh, if you have a place that is a leaky prison, then it makes your attempt – your lack of attempt to escape that much more – sort of Ooh. shameful, you know, which, yeah. you know, if you have like a really dangerous place to escape from and people are like, yeah, I'm not going to fucking try that. Cause you're, then what's, you know, yeah, you could, you could agree with that. But if you have a place with like, you know, obvious holes in security and somebody's yeah. like, no, I'm not going to get out of here. It's like, really? <laughs> so are you the victim? Right. We were talking a little bit about the fact, like who thinks that Shawshank is their favorite movie. And now as we talk about this a little bit more, I can see a lot more parallels for people who, are have had addictions, have been in abusive relationships, and 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 seeing mm. that as really like this movie, uh, Tim Robbins says people come up to him and say they changed my life. Yeah, and now I kind of see it a little bit because even if you go to the simplest, dumbest thing, but like a, a Twitter or something like that, like you know, people who are on it all the time, like I can't get off it or I gotta get off it, but they get back on. It. You yeah. know, there is that is a prison where you are you're giving yourself a certain. Um, and anger, you're giving yourself a certain validation by getting your retweets. You're getting, you're, you're creating a system that if you broke mm. free of it, you would be probably a lot happier. Yeah, I mean, that's what everyone says. Yeah, the best angry Twitterer. You could be the yeah. red of Twitter. Yeah, and where is it, and where is it yeah. getting you? And I'm kind of with you, like Duncan. Uh, I started this episode as like a Shawshank hater. And uh, I'm softening. You're, like you're making oh. a case for me. Oh, cool. Oh, well, good. Because I think. Going back to kind of tie it all together, it's the idea of the pill and what's, you know, the way the pill looks and what's inside the pill. And I think this movie does a very good job, especially now having this conversation. You can get into it. It's well acted. It looks good. Yeah. It, it's got a great, it's uplifting. Everything about it works. But I think when you dig a little bit deeper, you realize, oh, wow, I just, there's a deeper thing going it's on deep. here. That's I'm what picture, I'm picturing us digging into Shawshank with a tiny rock hammer. <laughs> 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 it's been awesome. Yeah, you're awesome. You, man. Oh, thank, thank you for so having me. Thank you so much for talking about this. Thanks, so thanks you guys. Thanks a, a lot. That was a blast. What do you think about this movie as far as its lasting effects? This is the first time that. Morgan Freeman did narration for a film. It's like, wow, you, the first time. That's the first time. He actually recorded all the narration of the movie in 40 minutes, and they would play it um, in the scenes to get the pacing of the shooting of the scenes. And then when they actually recorded it for the movie, it took three weeks, which is hilarious. Like, you know, just the first instinct. But, yeah, like it, that even feels comforting, just hearing Morgan Freeman's voice. It's like, oh, right, we're, we're in a safe spot. Like, this movie created that thing that we are now, we take for granted. Wow, so prisons are safe spaces. I think there is some safety. Like It's here. like a dog in a crate. Yeah. Well, let me ask you this. It's called the Shawshank Redemption. Mm -hmm. Who do you think is getting redeemed? You know, I thought about this on the way over here. 
Here's what I'm going to say. Shawshank is getting redeemed. The prison itself? The prison itself and everyone inside of it. They create a library. They put a space of like learning inside of it. They play opera for everyone. Um, he escapes, which gives people hope. He inspires Red to not go the same way that the man before him went and killing himself in the halfway house. I think it's about redeeming everyone inside. That's interesting. And it, it makes me wonder if with how beloved the Shawshank Redemption is, we're in a moment now where we're trying to take books away from prisoners in New York, where we're limiting what they can read, where we're trying to remove art that for as much as everybody seems to love this movie and I've seen it, we're going against it in all of our prison policies. Right. You know, I think this idea of giving up on people that are there because it, you know, I think, our, I mean, look, you can listen to our prison reform podcast, which is great. It's very, <laughs> it's very nuts and bolts. But no, it's like, I think there is something about getting back up and and not turning away. And, and, you know, if there was no one fighting for these guys to read these books, they wouldn't have books. If it wasn't for the fact that he wrote every single week to the state to get more money, like someone was the champion of all these prisoners that – time and people have forgotten and have abused. He has no reason to help everybody out there. He is educated. He doesn't need a GD. He doesn't need to, like, read more books. He doesn't even drink beer when he gets people beer. Yes. Yeah. He doesn't need those things, but he knows that if you give those things to people, it will ignite hope, and then hope will spark a rebellion, and that, I think, was maybe said in one of the Star Wars movies. Um, <laughs> but, uh, oh, and what about this? The redemption of the administration of the prison. Andy called out the warden for all of his bad acts. He killed himself, which means that the prison now is going to be run better. There's redemption all over this movie. I think there's a big idea there. Like, can you give someone hope? Can you give someone, you know, a chance to redeem themselves. But right, because there's this seesawing effect in the movie where when Tim Robbins shows up, he's the guy who doesn't know anything, and Morgan Freeman is the guy who knows everything. And right. by the end, it's Tim Robbins trying to teach M Morgan Freeman how to live. Well, right. I would say that Tim Robbins doesn't know how to work the prison system, and Red doesn't know how to work getting out of the prison system. You know what I'm saying? It's like It's sort of like they both are they both learn from each other. Like one comes in to say like, this is how you get through the prison. And the other one is like, this is how you get through life. This is how you come back. It also seems like there's something in this movie about, about privilege and about passing. Mm -hmm. Because part of what helps Tim Robbins do anything is that he can sound like a smooth guy and he's pretty smart and the other wardens are more apt to trust him than they are anybody else. Right. But this movie is doing a lot with showing how different people talk differently in different situations. You know, in our first clip that we have of Morgan Freeman, we see him talk in a really specific way to the parole board. And then when we cut to him again, Morgan Freeman does the same lines, the same performance again, but completely drains it of every emotion he invested in it before. Yeah. We see by your file you've served 20 years of a life sentence. Yes, sir. You feel you've been rehabilitated? Oh, yes, sir. Absolutely, sir. I mean, I learned my lesson. I can honestly say that I'm a changed man. And I'm no longer a danger to society. That's God's honest truth. It says here that you served 30 years of life sentence. You feel you've been rehabilitated? Oh, yes, sir. 
without a doubt. And I can honestly say I'm a changed man. No danger to society here. God's honest truth. Absolutely rehabilitating. And then here he is when he finally stops acting at all and just starts getting getting real. That kid's long gone. This old man is all that's left. I gotta live with that. Rehabilitated. It's just a bullshit word. So you go on and stamp your form, Sonny, and stop wasting my time. What do you think the differences are? What's going on in that middle section for you? I mean, that's definitely, what, his absolute lack of hope. Like, he's going to go right. through the motions, but he has no hope anymore that they'll ever set him free. Right. And the first, we see the first one, it feels like he's playing the game of, um, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to play the role that you want me to play. Yeah. And then the second one is, like, kind of acting, and then the third one is the real. You know that in the first one, he's acting right away because as soon as he leaves that prison warden's room after getting rejected and he goes outside, he's talking like a completely different person again. Like right. he has so many different ways of talking to people. I feel like the second and third sections are both about a lack of hope, but in a completely different way. Like in the third section, there's something where he has so little hope he's free. He's not even right, planning for anything. Maybe the idea is that his spirit is free, so he can speak his mind. If they tell him he has to stay in here for 10 more years, he can. And if he can go home, it's fine because he has kind of disconnected himself from being defined by the prison. Yeah, it's like when I was little, my dad took me to this grave in Crete of this guy that he really worshipped, the, the writer Nikos Kazantzakis, who uh-huh. wrote the book Zorba the Greek. Okay. And his tombstone says, I want nothing, I hope for nothing, I am free. My dad bought it in Greek on a shirt, and I, I still have it. that shirt. But that's that seems to me what that scene's about. I feel like, going back to that clip that you played before of Tim Robbins, it seems like that's when Tim Robbins kind of turns. And it's like, now I'm going to get out of this prison. Like It feels like something broke in him in that solitary confinement. And that was the thing that I was like, why are we putting so much weight on that scene? Because isn't the whole, I mean, hasn't he been digging that tunnel the entire time? Hasn't he been working towards this the entire time? It just seems like, now he's like, now I'm going to get out of here. And that just seemed to me like, that broke you? And like, I don't know. I don't, I, I think it, the mentality of that moment is different than I would want it to be. Yeah, that's, there's some emotional beats in there I don't totally get. Like, as part of why he acted like he was free to himself the whole time is yeah. because he knew he would be free someday. Yeah. Or or what is that switch? There's that thing Put in the Put that scene where... at the top of the movie, like let him get in solitary confinement there and then like let that dictate the rest. But it doesn't even, it's incongruous to the person that he is because the first night he's in jail, he shows no emotion. You know, so there is, I don't know, that scene didn't play well for me. Yeah, and we actually have that moment where we see him start to dig for the first time, which is yeah. in the middle of that. Yeah. So he's already walking around with, what is that lovely line that Morgan Freeman says? Like he's wearing a, a coat of freedom or something. Yeah. And that's way before he starts to dig. I think that the movie may suffer in in that scene in particular, and maybe some other scenes as well, from an over-directing. Um, I had read a lot that Frank Darabont would just spend so much time going over and over the scene that the first scene where Andy and Red meet, uh, Red is pitching. And they shot that scene, that scene, for nine hours. And Morgan Freeman's arm was in a sling the next day because he couldn't do it anymore. And when you talk to Tim Robbins and Morgan Freeman now about this film, you know, they're both very cagey about their experiences. They'll say it was a great script, I love these characters. 
I love the power of the movie. But when it comes to shooting, uh, Morgan Freeman's like, it was a lot of people with a lot of opinions, and I don't want to get into that. Also, if he's been digging every night, I kind of wish he looked sleepier in the movie. <laughs> and you said you weren't going to nip him. <laughs> um, <laughs> Yeah, I mean, Tom Cruise actually turned down playing the Andy role because he didn't want to work with a newbie director like Frank Darabont. He didn't really trust him to pull, to pull it off. Well, it's interesting. The movie also could have been Tom Hanks at a certain point, uh, but he was doing Forrest Gump. It was also uh, given to Kevin Costner, who said he couldn't do it because he was mired in all that water wall disaster. But there is a really interesting version of this movie, and I think this perspective— may help you look at the movie in a little bit different way. Frank Darabont got the rights to this novella, and he wrote it. And Rob Reiner reads his script and is like, I think this is great. I want to give you $2.5 million so I can make this movie and direct it. Which makes sense because Rob Reiner did Stand By Me, which was based on The Body, which was in this exact same book where Shawshank comes from. And, and Frank Darabont says no because— it was his chance to do something really great. And he thought, at a certain point, I have to put myself out there and make a choice. So we're watching the story of a writer who's becoming a first-time director who's breaking free of his own prison and then has created this amazing career. Uh, and I think that but he But then is, he stays in his prison because the next movie he makes is The Green Mile. Well, technically, I mean, he, he's <laughs> physically in prison, but he is out of prison in the sense that he is broken out of the the shackles that Hollywood has, you know, cornered him to. Like, he could have taken a cool 2.5 mil and been like, all right, I'll write another one, and maybe one day I'll direct it. But no, he's like, you know what? I'm going to take this chance. I'm going to invest in myself and and free myself. So I think that that's maybe he is Andy. Wait, and how interesting is it that then after making these, he makes The Mist, which to me is right. the most hopeless movie I've ever seen. Yeah. I love that about it. I right. lo- I'm a sick person. In the ending where he, you know, the ending. I'll just say yeah. the ending for people who haven't seen it because I don't want to ruin it. Yeah, no, it is, a, it is a hopeless movie. Does it feel to you that this movie is almost too neat? That all of the threads get resolved, that all the bad people are punished, all the good people are rewarded, that everything just adds up so perfectly? Yes. I mean, even the fact that he knew it was going to rain somehow and it was going to thunderclap just when he needed it. Yeah, I think that goes into maybe the allegory of it all. You know, is it really... Is it really a story about a prisoner or is it a story about freedom? Because you put Shawshank as number one on this list. And it, I, to me, it almost becomes like this self-fulfilling, repeating prophecy, where if it's number one, you feel obligated to see it. And if you've seen it, you're going to see it in a frame of mind where you accept that it's probably good. And you're going to want to like it. And yeah. then it keeps being on number one because it's at the top. I mean, exactly. there's an argument that the internet made Shawshank because the internet's becoming popular around the time it starts being on TV all the time. Everybody on the internet is like, Shawshank, great movie. Well, I was going to say there is a conspiracy theory here. I talked about it earlier, about how it played for six days uh, in 2013 on a network. That's a lot. Like, And then when the movie came out on VHS, I think they shipped 32,000 copies of the, the DVD or the VHS out to video stores, which was astronomically high for a movie that was and still is a failure theatrically. Like on video and and all that stuff, it's made its money back. But there's no reason to make that many copies of a movie that no one saw. 
it just becomes part of the fabric of our lives. Well, it's self-perpetuating. I mean, to Shawshank is a verb. Like yes. so many movies are just like, oh, we're going to Shawshank her. Let's Shawshank that. Yeah. The idea of hiding something behind a poster. We've seen it in so many things. Like that's an, at least one, maybe even two Muppet movies. Yeah. It, it <laughs> <laughs> and as we all know, the barometer of most, uh, of most things. Um, I mean, even, even scary movie has a scene uh, right at the end where she's got her hands up. She's free. She's yeah. saved. Well, I mean, it's iconic. And by the way, we're talking about that I, image of hands up in the air. We talked about Platoon. Hands Whoa. up in the air. And then, of course, French Connection. Hands up in the air. It's so like, is this what a movie needs? Is it needs a pose? I'm beginning to go, as we put together this list, the movies have to be a little bit over two hours. Uh, I'm now seeing that in the films that we've done, people are putting their hands up to the sky. And also, it's got to have a Simpsons reference. Oh, of course. <laughs> Well, here's one that I pulled. This is from a Simpsons episode called American History Excellent. This is the episode where Montgomery Burns, he goes to prison. He's hosed, just like Tim Robbins is. He has a uh, cellmate with a secret who's got a, something hidden under his poster. He's got a warden with a heavy southern accent. Burns, you're coming with us. No, no, let me go. Surprised? Me see Montgomery Burns locked up like an animal? What caused this puzzling turn of events? Well, I'll tell you my tale by thinking about it to myself. All right, so Amy, we've come to that point where we kind of see what people thought at the time when this came out. We know that when it came out at first, it was a flop. It was re-released when it got nominated for how many Oscars? Like Seven. Seven Oscars, which it did not win. And even when it came out then, it didn't really even recoup its, uh, its costs. Um, but what were people saying about this movie? Because it kind of was in this giant summer. I mean... Like we talked about, it. it's Pulp Fiction, it's Jurassic Park, it's Forrest Gump. These are movies that I think they're all iconic, but in the theater, those were the big movies. Yeah. I mean, a lot of critics liked it. You know, right. they liked it. They liked it. There were a couple who didn't. Owen Gleiberman. I'll read a little bit of Owen Gleiberman yeah. from Entertainment Weekly. He writes. You need a certain craftsmanship to traffic in twin brands of manipulation, the exploitative and the sentimental. And there's no denying that Frank Darabont, who wrote and directed The Shawshank Redemption, is an accomplished button pusher. He coaches the actress that you always know who to root for and who against. And it helps, of course, that most of the prisoners don't actually behave like criminals. They never say a word about their pasts, and even Andy remains a downtrodden cipher. And this lends the proceedings a hollow, generic feel, as if Darabont had constructed a blueprint out of old prison melodramas. And he concludes like this, A movie like The Shawshank Redemption, with its brazenly mechanical plotting and its wish-fulfillment finale, requires a lead actor who can carry us on the wings of his good spirits, but then he makes fun of Tim Robbins's face, he says he looks like an overgrown baby's, and that there's oh. something, quote, naggingly unformed about him. And then Owen Lieberman concludes it saying, like, Morgan Freeman's great, but isn't it time that Morgan Freeman stopped playing the soulful sidekick? While we're on the subject of prison walls, an actor as great as he is shouldn't get too used to movies like this one. Ooh, interesting. And I would argue that this started him down a path of similar films to a certain degree. Um, you know, Roger Ebert says this is one of his favorite movies of all time. This is like one of his big ones, which I was surprised at because – like, I get that it's a good movie, and it, to me, is like, it's the most movie movie that we have seen. Like, it is, checks every box kind of perfectly, but it's, it's interesting that this would be someone's favorite movie, I think, right? Do you feel that way? Yeah, it seems like it would be a mass favorite. Like, right. like a group favorite. Like it's like what you put on, to agree. if we're all getting on a bus and there's a VCR or a DVD player on the bus and they're like, what do we want to watch? Everyone will be like, ah, Shawshank. 
Ebert said one thing. He says it's an allegory for maintaining one's feeling of self-worth when placed in a hopeless position. And Andy's integrity is an important theme in a storyline, especially in a prison where integrity is lacking. Well, then I'll say this as a salute to our recent guest, Jeff Tremaine, from the general episode. GQ called Shawshank Redemption, quote, the jackass Steel Magnolias. (laughs) (laughs) That is great. Um, Holy shit. All right, so that's all we have to say about Shawshank. So let's see where the die is going to take us next. All right, I'm going to give it a kiss for good luck. All right. Oh, she did it. (sighs) Here we go. It is... Ooh, number... Number 41. That is... King Kong. My kiss worked. Hello. (laughs) (laughs) I'm very excited about King Kong. Also, kind of a story about uh, prison. Uh, You know, uh, on this island... Captured there, brought back, I don't know. Giant I'm, wall? Yeah, there's a lot of, I'm drawing a lot of analogies. Anyway, escapes. But this is the 1933 King Kong. This is not the Peter Jackson King Kong. He's yes. on this list, but not for that film. Uh, well, I mean, thankfully. <laughs> and it's not the Jessica Lange uh, King Kong either. Right. We are going to Faye Ray, which oh. gives me an idea for what people should when they call in. Oh, yeah? What do you want them to do? Well, Faye Ray is the original Scream Queen. Oh, you're right. She is the screamer. So what if people just gave us a scream? Ooh, I like that. My fear is that everyone is going to be, like, hurt in the ears by hearing that. So maybe what we can do is you can give a scream, but also, if you want, give a grunt. So we can kind of get a little play acting here. So we'll hear a scream, and we'll hear your King Kong grunt. So give us your best screams and King Kong grunts, and we'll edit them together to a a remix. (laughs) A beautiful cacophony of your sound effects, because we love them so much in the Platoon episode. So give us a call at 747-666-5824. That's 747-666-5824 and uh, make some noise. Ooh, I like what you did there. See you next week for King Kong 1933. Hey, this is Arnie Niekamp from the Improv Fantasy Podcast, Hello from the Magic Tavern. I fell through a dimensional portal behind a Burger King in Chicago into the magical land of Foon, and I started a podcast. Season three has just begun with a brand new adventure to defeat the Dark Lord. If you're a new listener or you've fallen behind, season three is a great jumping on point. And we've got great guests like Justin McElroy. I sound like a fancy college professor. Fake nuts. <laughs> Rachel Bloom. You all see my collection of men corpses and one woman. Felicia Day and Colton Dunn. You've seen me have intercourse with a variety of species. It's a bummer. Andy Daly. You have the members of Genesis listed, but Phil Collins has crossed out and then circled and crossed out again. Uh, Yes, I have killed Phil Collins twice. Thomas Middleditch. (laughs) Jesus. I mean, Jazos. (laughs) Ruler of the Eighth Circle. And that's just the beginning. Season three of Hello from the Magic Tavern is out now. Listen in Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, (laughs) That's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil.
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.